Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're watching Battleground on ADH-TV, the home of intelligent free thought, where tonight we do battle in the history wars. Should Australians be paying reparations for the sins of colonialism? And if so, should they get the credit for what went right? Stick with me for a dangerously heretical conversation with Nigel Bigger, the author of an informative new book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. And I'll be joined by my Menzies Research Centre colleague, James Matthias, to launch a new segment on Battleground, Waste Watch, in which we endeavour to bring some accountability to government and the way they spend your money. I'm Nick Cater, and I have the privilege of hosting Battleground, which you can watch on the ADH-TV app on your smartphone or smart TV, and you can download that app free of charge from the Apple or Google Play stores. Now to the voice, which started, you remember, as what the Prime Minister called a gracious and modest proposal recognising First Nations people in our nation's birth certificate. Now... It's all about the money. A leading Yes campaigner says the voice to Parliament will be a step towards getting non-Indigenous Aussies to pay the rent for living on Aboriginal land. Thomas Mayo, who was a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, says a black rep, rep body, as he calls it, will negotiate with the Commonwealth to win reparations for stolen land and the harm caused by colonial institutions. To pay respects to the elders of the Communist Party, who I think, uh, without a doubt, have played a very important role in our activism. You know, this is the first step. It's a vital step. Pay the rent, for example. You know, how how do we do that in a way that is transparent and that it actually sees reparations and compensation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Well, Mayo's not alone in his expectations. The Queensland government has flagged it will have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in reparations to at least 150 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes. The Queensland government can't say how much will be paid or, and to who. The State Minister Craig Crawford told The Australian those decisions are really going to have to be informed by the truth-telling inquiry. Well, perhaps the truth-telling could begin right now, starting with a complete statement of what we're going to be up for if we vote yes to The Voice in this year's referendum. It would be good to see a bit more truth in advertising from the Yes campaign, whose TV advertisement currently screening on high rotation does not even mention the phrase The Voice. The Prime Minister has at least put on record that The Voice will be followed by truth-telling and a treaty, as proposed in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. 
But as we can see from what's happening in Queensland, it's unlikely to end there. A treaty will lead to ambit claims, which the government will doubtless pay in full, because if we're going to haggle over money, it will be taken as a sign that we're not as repentant about colonialisation as we should be. But let's get real for a moment and work through if this really is the best and fairest way to assuage colonial guilt with which we're supposed to be burdened. If reparations are supposed to be a form of compensation, we should think through who deserves that compensation and whose pockets it should be drawn from. Settling historical grievances is not as easy as it would be to settle something like, say, a motor insurance dispute, where someone suffers a quantifiable loss because of somebody else's carelessness. The individuals who may or may not be responsible for colonial dispossession are sadly no longer with us. Indeed, in some cases, neither are their statues. Today's taxpayers will have to pay for the crimes of their supposed ancestors, who are no longer here to defend themselves, apparently. And to whom should the reparations be paid? Can people with Aboriginal blood today prove that they have suffered injury from wrongs done to their forebears centuries ago? And what about somebody like Lydia Thorpe, who has Anglo-Irish as well as Aboriginal ancestors? Does that mean she'll be expected to pay compensation to herself? When Thomas Mayo insists non-Aboriginal Australians must pay rent, he's reopening the question of land rights that was settled decades ago. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land councils hold the collective ownership over roughly half of the continent. Mining companies pay handsome royalties for permission to access that land. Those demanding reparations would say that the damage of colonialism continues to this day. They claim endemic racism and stigma are blighting Aboriginal lives. They argue that compensation will help out educational, social, medical and economic equality. Yet assistance, when needed, should surely be included in the welfare, education and health budgets. And if Mayo thinks that the 35 billion or so the government pays in assistance for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians isn't enough, well, then he's free to make the case for more. That'll be a hard argument to make, however. The correlation between spending and tangible social benefits is somewhat weaker than socialists like Mayo like to think. The trouble with the conversation about The Voice is it's infused with a narrow, simplistic narrative about our colonial past. So many people have just rushed to the judgment, uh, rushed to judgment and condemned colonialism for its supposed racist, exploitative and violent character without paying attention to the facts. Well, Nigel Bigger is an academic thinker who's invested more time than most working through the ethics of colonisation. And he brings a degree of clarity to the issue that we desperately need in this country right now. I read his new book, Colonial, colonialism, a moral reckoning over the summer. And I was struck with his historical rigor, the nuance, and his bravery in tackling issues from which others would shrink. Bigger is not a historian. He's an Anglican priest, theologian, and ethicist, who's held positions as professor of theology and ethics at the University of Leeds and Trinity College Dublin. Most recently, he was Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford until his retirement last year. He joins me now from Oxford. Oxford uh, Nigel, thank you for your book, Colonialism, It's uh, a Reckoning. It's, it's, it's somewhat, uh, you adopt a somewhat unfash unfashionable position, if I can say that. You, 
in that you refuse to condemn colonialism outright, but you neither, neither do you claim that it's always and everywhere a good thing. I suspect that the nuance in your arguments would be lost on your critics, am I right? Uh, yeah, so it seems, uh, Nick. I mean, I, I wrote the book because uh, I knew enough about British imperial and colonial history to know that the the, the story currently being put about in my country, probably yours, is that uh, British colonialism was nothing but a litany of racism and economic exploitation and cultural suppression. And I knew enough, as I said, to know that that story just is not true. Uh, I mean, yes, there were elements of all of those involved, but also very positive elements uh, too. So, so my position is, by all means, let's tell the truth, but let's, let's tell the whole truth. Of course, it's a, it's a difficult ground, and you begin your book by describing an early brush with uh, cancel culture and the cultural and academic intolerance that, uh, that, bought, that you, you arrived into when you started making some arguments about Cecil Rhodes in 2017 at a time when the mob was out to tear down his statue. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so you're right. In, in, in 2016, in fact, I, I uh, began to make known my opposition to the tearing down of Rose's statue. And then in uh, 2017, I and a, a very eminent historian of empire, John Darwin, launched a project called Ethics and Empire, designed to look at how people from ancient China to the modern period have regarded empire morally um, um, in their own time. And then uh, late in uh, November 17, I published an article in the London Times in which I made what I thought was the completely anodyne, incontrovertible uh, uh, claim that we British and, by extension, Australians, Canadians, New Zealanders, uh, we, 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 have, we can find cause for both pride and shame in our, uh, in our colonial past. I mean, both, not just shame, also pride. And that um, provoked an academic at uh, Cambridge University uh, Dr. Prima Varugopal to launch a campaign to, uh, to use her words, to shut down uh, my Ethics and Empire project. Whenever we hear this word, uh, the suffix ism added to a word, I always suspect there's some intellectual skullduggery at work, Nigel. Um, the attempt to turn something complex and multifaceted into a, a single unbending ideological force. So what are we to make of the, the term colonialism? Is there such a thing? Yes, Nick, I, I, like you, I, I try and avoid talking about imperialism or colonialism um, because it, it, it connotes, as it were, a, a single unitary project, uh, as if someone woke up in London one sunny day in, let's say, 1600 and said, oh, let's go and conquer the world. It was never like that. Empires are seldom like that. Maybe, maybe Nazi Germany was like that when Hitler decided to go and, and conquer Europe. Uh, but usually it's not like that. It, uh, the, the, the British colonial phenomena were, were many, uh, and, and they differed over time, and they differed from Newfoundland to New Zealand. Um, so uh, uh, my view is, uh, uh, I think it's best to avoid talking about colonialism. There was no project. The, the, the empire was about all manner of things, from, from trade to, um, uh, to uh, humanitarian endeavour uh, to... Um, uh, gaining geopolitical advantage, all manner of thing. And uh, to talk about colonialism implies a unity and coherence that just wasn't wasn't there. Oh, and I think you can see it when you, you look at Australia. It's a very different 
uh, type of exercise, uh, the settlement in Australia, than earlier colonies. Uh, we like to think of it as an enlightenment settlement. It was motivated and, and driven by, by men of science, people of the enlightenment who had some quite high ideals. But of course, in, a, in, a, in Australia, as in Canada, as in New Zealand and, and the United States, where settlers, free settlers, find themselves in conflict with the indigenous inhabitants from the beginning, there's always going to be issues. And you write this, when the people of one culture meet another and dominate it in number and power, only three outcomes are possible. Either the dominant people annihilate the dominant one, or the latter adopts and assimilates, or the two people separate. And you say that in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, or Australia, or South, South, or South Africa, the imperial policy was assimilation. Uh, the belief that native peoples were equally, uh, essentially equal to Britons and possessed poten the potential to become equally civilised was the predominant sentiment in the imperial metropolis, even when some settlers on the colonial periphery doubted it. Well, that word assimilation, I know what you mean and I understand it and, and I understand the concept, but it has bad connotations for some these days. Uh, can you explain a little bit further what you do and what you don't mean by assimilation? Yeah, well, let's go back to, to, to the three options I laid out. Um, annihilation, uh, separation, or, or what we might call apartheid and assimilation. Um, British colonial government policy and imperial policy uh, was uh, never annihilation. In, in my view, there, there was never anything uh, uh, approaching an intentional genocide, uh, not even in Tasmania. Uh, and uh, some um, Australian historians uh, standing to my left, like Henry Reynolds, would agree with that. Um, uh, there the, the, the were occasionally there were policies of temporary separation, uh, the the creation of reserves for native peoples in in uh, North America, for example. The, the purpose of which was to to protect um, Aboriginal peoples, native peoples, uh, from conflict with settlers, uh, so that they could. Um, gradually learn to to uh, adapt to a new way of life that was coming uh, uh in particular agriculture learn english uh, so that they could then uh, play an unequal part in the emerging europeanized society so yes um it is it is important to note that um uh, in 1853 black africans were granted the vote in the same terms as whites um uh, long before um blacks were granted the the vote in, in America. And in, 1860, in 1867, I think they were granted, uh, Maori were granted uh, the rights in the same terms as whites in, in New Zealand, and 1885 in Canada. Now, it didn't always work out as well as we, we would like, because in Canada, for example, um, the, the Liberal Prime Minister, Wilfrid Laurier, 10 years after the vote was granted, and native Canadians in Eastern Canada revoked the vote. Why? <laughs> because the natives were all voting Tory. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a clear upward trajectory into the into the sunlit uplands of, of progress. There were ups and downs, but the the idea was the 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 liberal idea, the humanitarian idea was, uh, and indeed the Christian idea, that that native peoples may well be uh, uh, relatively speaking underdeveloped, but that native peoples, in principle, uh, are equally capable of being as developed and as civilized as as white people. And so the idea was to to assimilate them into 
a new common society uh, on equal terms as equal citizens. Yeah, and that's quite a far-sighted idea, isn't it? I mean, compared to what's happening in the rest of the world in that period, and certainly, you know, going through that period in the the late 19th and early 20th century when the the idea of eugenics reigned, the idea that some races of people were were somehow inferior. Uh, you know, that that the idea that Aboriginal people in Australia were, were had equal ability and uh, to to thrive uh, had uh, has stuck pretty well, hasn't it? And and that from day one yeah. there was there was protection under the law for Aboriginals. Over time they become fully integrated as citizens with the rights and the duties to vote and so on. My difficulty with the voice to parliament, which is this proposal that's here at the moment, we'll be voting on this later in the year. Do we want uh, a, a separate indigenous voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution? My difficulty with that is that it disrupts the balance by giving special rights to indigenous people, uh, not just to help them catch up on you know, basic measures like education and health, which of course we'd support, but in perpetuity by making this new body part of the constitution. That to me is separatism, it seems to me, as you described in your three options. And it's a fundamental notion, shift from the notion that we're all equal as citizens holding an identical state in our shared national inheritance. Yes, like, I mean, you, you know more about that debate than I do here in, in Britain, but uh, I agree with, I share your reservation uh, in that the, the, the danger is uh, that um, uh, this creates, this actually exacerbates uh, racial antagonism by, by privileging one people uh, over, I mean, Australia com comprises people from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds now, um, by privileging one people. Uh, and, and also, I, I take it it is the case that Aboriginal Australians already have representation through the normal means of parliamentary uh, elections. But they, they do, Nigel. Um, they do, Nigel. In fact, there's 11... Aboriginal representatives, either MPs or senators, right now, which is which is, which is higher, a higher as a percentage than the three point six of the general population, six percent of the general population that are Aboriginal. So they they do have not just one voice, but eleven voices. So it, it is yeah. it, it is an extra on top of that. I mean, there are various ways in which a single state can accommodate a measure, let's say, of cultural autonomy. So in in Britain here, which is a multinational state, as you well know, comprising English. Scots, Welsh, and Irish. Uh, Welsh language uh, has been revived within the British state, largely through through public funding uh, uh, um, for some time now. And many people in Wales speak both English and, and, and Welsh. So it's possible for a single state to support uh, um, Aboriginal culture, um, but but giving Aboriginal folk, uh, as it were, a, a separate and privileged uh, uh, um, um, political voice is, I think, a uh, is, a, is a dangerous step for the reason I've, I've, I've suggested. Well, let me test this out with you because I, I think I found that your, your three options, uh, basically assimilation or you know, equal citizenship, as we might call it, um, the uh, eradication of one race over another or one, one group over another, uh, or, or the... Uh, separate development of the two, and I hesitate to use that word apartheid because it's so loaded, but of course that's what it means in literal terms. This is very useful to understand where we are now. So if if that movement for the voice is, is a move, as I see it, towards separatism, there's something else happening. It's being pushed one step further with the claim of Aboriginal sovereignty. 
to explain what I mean, let's have a listen to a speech in the Australian Senate this week from Aboriginal Senator Lydia Thorpe. This is a colonial institution with colonial laws. I'm here, yes, I'm here to infiltrate it, to rattle the cages, to destroy the white supremacy that is represented in this place. The Constitution is an illegal document. It's illegal. We will never cede our sovereignty and we'll fight you to the end for a treaty so that we have real power in this country. So look out. Pretty aggressive uh, statement there from Lydia, even for Lydia, um, and, uh, and a quite a radical one. But I think she does cross the line still further, Nigel. She seems to want to go back and revisit the legitimacy of, of Australian settlement by, by the British at all and to say, basically, we, we have no place in this country and uh, we need to cede sovereignty to the Aboriginal people. That's a pretty radical form, and I don't see that ending nicely, do you? No, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of the example of, of Canada, where, where uh, First Nations peoples have demanded and, and, and got all sorts of, of special rights, particularly over certain territories. Um, um, and from what I've read, uh, Nick, uh, within uh, uh, the territories or, or reserves of, of Native peoples in Canada, Native peoples often do not flourish uh, because of, of corruption, be precisely because they are cut off from wider uh, Western urbanized, Europeanized s society. Um, and and so um, um, the, 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 there's a danger here of creating, as it were, enclaves or ghettos of, of native folk who, who are disadvantaged precisely because they are separated. It all depends on what, what sovereignty means. Um, but uh, um, it, it seems it seems to me to be to be highly dangerous to compromise the notion of of, of a common citizenship, a common investment in Australia. Uh, uh, of course, uh, as I said, there can be policies which 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 support uh, uh, Aboriginal uh, culture, uh, but but to 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 uh, in, to to establish a kind of political uh, uh, separation and apartheid within the state, I think is is very. Uh, is very dangerous, and also uh, I take it there, as in Canada, there, um, there are lots of people who have Aboriginal blood who are thoroughly integrated into Westernized society, um, and and the question arises: Well, uh, um, um, who does the likes of, of Lydia represent exactly? Uh, um, because uh, it seems to me they're highly likely she doesn't represent all Aboriginal people. Uh, so who's she speaking for, and who would who would the these sovereign nations comprise? Um, uh, but I, I, I do th I do think um, while uh, a, a unitary state can accommodate uh, a measure of cultural autonomy, for example, in the UK, um, Scotland has has had its own legal system, its own church, its own educational system ever since the Union. Um, uh, I, I think this needs to be to, to, to be uh, subordinated to uh, a unitary cohesive state. Otherwise, you 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 have um, uh, uncontrollable tensions and conflicts. Yeah, indeed. The, the question of who qualifies as an uh, Indigenous person, up to now it didn't really matter too much if people wanted... I mean, Lydia Thorpe, for instance, she's partly Irish, partly English, 
and, uh, and, and partly Aboriginal. Now, if she wants to identify as an Aboriginal person, then, then that's fine. You know, I mean, I'm English and Scottish, so I can choose, but I actually decide I'm an Australian and that solves the problem. But yep. the, the point is it does become an issue when you start to grant special rights in the form of a new, a new voice to parliament and so forth. And when it comes to reparations, and I want to explore this now, because I, I think the way you deal with this question, the question of reparations, helps unpack some of these moral complexities. They're being discussed actively by the Queensland government right now, and there's, there, are, there is at least one prominent uh, advocate for the voice to parliament who says it will lead on to uh, white Australians having to pay the rent for living on Aboriginal land. Now, deciding who gets what and how much and to whom pays what to whom gets a little hard, doesn't it, when we delve into history? You, you quote from a letter published in The Times some years ago in which a former diplomat recounts a conversation he had with a Nigerian ruler who was demanding compensation for colonial oppression. And after listening intently, the dis dis diplomat replied, I entirely agree and you shall have your compensation just as soon as we get ours from the Romans. It's not an easy one to sort out, is it? No, I really think um, uh, we should focus on trying to address uh, unjust disadvantages in the present, rather than uh, which, which have been caused by all manner of, of, of thing, uh, rather than trying to, to sort out the injustices of a, of a certain period of, of the past, let's say 200 years ago, um, because uh, um, um, the descendants of of victims 200 years ago are not the victims. Um, my people were Scots, uh, and in the 1600s they were on the wrong side of the Scottish government. They fought battles they lost. They were they were hounded into the Scottish hills. Do I feel their pain? Don't be absurd. <laughs> my position is not theirs. Thank God. Um, um, so so uh, to, to try trying to determine. Uh, um, who did wrong to, to whom and what's now owed, given what happened 200 years ago, just doesn't make sense. Apart from anything else, um, all peoples in Australia, including Aboriginals, uh, now have, have the benefits of a, of a highly prosperous, uh, a very liberal uh, society in which there is a welfare state, which didn't exist 200 years ago. So the, in many respects, the descendants of, of um, unjustly treated Aboriginals are far, far better off than their ancestors. Um, uh, so I think it, it really doesn't make sense to try and, as it were, freeze history to a certain point and say, well, so-and-so was unjustly treated, we, we, need to, we need to make reparation for that then. I mean, I, I, I take it also that as in North America, native peoples were, were um, uh, quite accustomed to push each other off the land. Um, so so um, um, the, the question is, why focus on, on white settlers who pushed X people off land when when another Aboriginal people some hundred years before had pushed them off the land. I mean, you you can't you can't uh, you can't you can't as it were unravel the knots of history in that way. By all means, let let's address present disadvantage. Um, but um, unless we have a case that's very similar to that of of the the uh, looting of Jewish property by Nazis, and then you have a subsequent immediately subsequent German state that compensates. Uh, uh, the the relatives of those Jews who were who were robbed. That's that's a case where the identity of the perpetrator is clear. The identity of those uh, who uh, are owed compensation is clear, and the identity of the subsequent state is clear. That's that's all 
relatively rational. But when you when you try and go back two hundred years to sort out history, I, I think it's it's not rational. Well, uh, a lot we could have got to, but we're running out of time. I mean, we talk you you in your book you talk a lot about slavery and and the arguments around that. I'd like maybe to have a chance to revisit that with you at a future moment. But just very quickly, sure. since you mentioned um, the question of Nazi Germany, do you think that the anti-colonialists uh, undermine their arguments by jumping to judgment with words like genocide, for instance, which, as you rightly point out, I think was not a feature of Australian society, because it immediately puts those uh, sins and evils, whatever they were, on a par with probably the greatest evil in modern history, uh, the extermination yeah. of the Jews yeah. and so forth. Uh, you know, do, they, do we perhaps need to encourage them to moderate their language and be more accurate in what, what their criticisms are? The, the, the reason they do that, Nick, is, is that, uh, I mean, the British Empire and Australia, like any state, uh, uh, over time contains both evils and goods, right? Uh, and we, we've heard about the, the evils, the, the, the unjust treatment of Aboriginals. But look, I mean, Australia uh, quickly became one of the most prosperous uh, countries in the world before the end of the 1800s, and is now one of the most prosperous and liberal countries in the world to live in, right? So, so, so there were achievements as well as, as, well as failure, failures. Um, but the reason the, reason the anti-colonialists want to uh, uh, equate British colonialism with Nazism, with Auschwitz and genocide and Saying that Hit, that the Churchill was equivalent to Hitler is because uh, we all know that that uh, uh, um, some states are so centrally evil that it doesn't matter how many bridges they built or how whether they made the trains run on time, that doesn't compensate for the evils of of Auschwitz. So that that's why the anti-colonialists try and equate British colonialism with with Nazism, and and as you say, uh, genocide is one way of doing that. And the problem with with yeah. with the word genocide is it, it's it's so broadly defined. It needs to be. Uh, an intentional act of of uh, systemic annihilation of a people. And that never happened in Australia, to my knowledge. Indeed, Nigel, thank you very much. Just could, uh, your book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, is published by William Collins Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. Thank you very much for, for joining us today on Battleground. Great to talk. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. And now to a new segment on Battleground, Waste Watch in which we endeavour to bring some accountability back to government and the way they spend your money. The team at the Menzies Research Centre has been examining hundreds of government tenders, contracts and departmental budget statements to highlight an ever-growing appetite to spend your taxpayer dollars in questionable ways. James Matthias from the Menzies Research Centre joins me to report on the latest findings from Melbourne. James, what can you tell us about a government agency called the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, which uh, I must admit I hadn't heard of until you sent me your notes. That's right, Nick, and I certainly hadn't heard of it before I started to do this research, but the ACICIAR is set up by the government, spends about $90 million a year, has 78 um, employees, and since 2019 has administered $88 million worth of contracts through Tender, one of which was $250,000 to the Queensland University of Technology to conduct, and I've got my notes here so I get it right, Nick, <laughs> uh, a research report on institutional barriers to climate finance through a gendered lens in Fiji, Samoa and the Solomon Islands. Just, just just, run through that again. You must be making this up. And tell me what the research was called again, James. $250,000 and... Quarter, uh, a quarter of a million dollars. A quarter of a million dollars, right, for what? <laughs> uh, to 
find out institutional barriers to climate finance through a gendered lens in Fiji, Samoa and the Solomon Islands. Mm. But what's interesting about this is that on their website, this was commissioned in uh, December of 2022, on their website it said that it, this had project had finished in January of 2023 and no report exists. But again, I'm going to look at my notes here because we do find a project outcome, which says that they identified current climate finance options that may best support gender equity outcomes and community-based adaptation approaches in agriculture. But that's not the cracker here, Nick, because there was also an institution in Fiji called the House of Sarah. And do you know what they were reporting into themselves, Nick? No, you tell me. Institutional barriers to climate finance <laughs> through a gendered lens in Fiji, Samoa and the Solomon Islands. You couldn't make this up. Look, it would, I don't know why I'm laughing. This is our money at work, right? But this is, I mean, the, the title of the research. So you're telling me that uh, we're paying for some very ho-hum, questionable research that duplicates something that's already in the public domain. Have I got that right? That's exactly right, Nick, unfortunately. And there's just one suggestion that I have to the ACIAR. Maybe next time send one of your 78 employees to the workshop that the local org organisation held when they had uh, their research report released to the public. Maybe then spend $250,000. 78 employees this outfit's got, right? <laughs> I wonder how they fill their working hours, but... Uh... I suppose that, that's a challenge for a lot of public servants. But moving on, I gather there's something very fishy going on in the Department of Fisheries. Tell me about there it. There is, Nick. There is indeed. You know, since 2019, this department has uh, entered into 1,750 contracts worth $615 million for personal labour hire. Uh, now, the government's going through this thing at the moment, same job, same pay. We can't outsource the labour hire anymore. But the department has administered 1,750 contracts. Th that, so that, did you say that that was $600 million? Did you say that? It's more than half a billion dollars. $615 million worth of temporary labour. Look, you, you've been an advisor uh, to government ministers, uh, which I guess gives you some clues as to where the fiscal bo bodies are buried. This trend, James, of outsourcing work to outside consultants that you think should be done by the public service is all too common, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a bit like, in a way, you know, I, I don't know, you know, you've got a standing army, but you keep them in the barracks because you don't trust them to fight the war. Is that right? <laughs> Nick, 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 it's so true. And, you know, I had a look at the Department of Fisheries portfolio budget statement, which is where you can usually find... Um, their average number of staffing uh, that they had during the year. And the Department of Fisheries don't have it listed. So look, what, what, again, going back to your ministerial experience, James, what sort of checks and balances are on this? I mean, can a minister or his staff look at this and say, this is nonsense, you know, stop this nonsense, get on with your day job? Or, 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 or do they just carry on like they're a law unto themselves? Uh, well, they can, Nick. They would need to commission a review, which brings, means bringing in more outside consultants to review the department's temporary labour contracts. <laughs> well, James, that's a terrific, um, well, a terrific in a, in a very grim way. But look, I look forward to another Waste Watch uh, next week. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Nick. 
Well, let's hear what you have to say now, starting with the Queensland government's plan to build an 1,100-kilometre high-voltage transmission line to connect Mount Isa, population 19,600, to the grid. It's just one of the green follies of which Anastasia Palaszczuk's government is heaping billions of dollars upon, raised by, money raised by increasing the royalties on coal. I made the point in a recent column that Mount Isa, if Mount Isa needs a new power supply, and I'm not sure that it does, by the way, the sensible thing would be to install a small modular reactor supplying power locally. Mick writes, read this and weep. Three small modular reactors were operational in 2022, located in Russia, China and India. Three more were under construction, while 65 SMRs were still in the design stage. Most of them had a capacity between 100 and 300 megawatts. Yes, Mick, exactly, which as you know, would be the perfect size for Mount Isa. Uh, Jude wrote in to say, chasing green energy and making low income people even more broke is ridiculous. Can someone tell me where is the climate crisis? Where? All this pain and money for nothing. I'm going to have to caution you there, Jude. Uh, you know those things are questions we're not allowed to ask. But uh, anyway, let's move on. Bruce writes in to say, Palachuk, I think that's a typo, by the way, but I'm not sure. Palachuk needs to go. She cannot control crime, the economy, housing or the health system. She takes the royalties from mining and spends it as fast as she gets it. Go, Anna. You won't be missed. Well, there were a lot of comments about my column in The Australian on Monday on the ABC's decision to sack chief political correspondent Andrew Probin. I remarked that a straight white male faces an uphill struggle if, they go, if, they're, if they're crazy enough to apply for a job in any organisation like the ABC, which has boxes to tick. Penny writes, excellent article, Nick, but don't think the ABC's management has been hoodwinked. All of them are of similar disposition on the range of biases you've listed and have found their way into these influ influential positions as a direct result. They are constantly sneering at Australians who hold conservative values and are protected by the rank cowardice of politicians. Labour protects them because they represent millions of dollars of free advertising and the coalition protect them because the party doesn't stand for anything much anymore. Harsh, Penny, harsh. Robert comments, I'm a proud straight white male and I'm not privileged. 55 years working and still working. No free handouts for me. Mm. Wally wrote in to say, many thanks for such an articulate and clear summary of the state of affairs in Australia. But for the vast majority of Australians who can do nothing to stop this emerging insanity with sadness and alarm at those developments, our only our only slight compensation is partaking in a little schadenfreude. We are witnessing a revolution taking place in this country, a revolution that has no roots in democratic instincts or values. That's true enough. Well, Betty says, the word diversity is now a cult password. If you disagree, you're racist. We need to reclaim our language. And Peter writes, all the big employees have been infiltrated with this sinister nonsense in both the public and private sectors. When you get an email from them, it will have he, she, they, after or under the person's name. Why? Because heaven forbid we might wrongly assume that Rhonda is a female. Never mind that 99.9% .9 of the time the assumption is correct. 
Brendan comments, I run a small engineering consultancy. In our 23 years of operation, we have never discriminated in any way with our staff policies, yet we are under increasing pressure from major clients to implement equity, diversity and inclusion policies that mirror their own. Standing against critical race theory based on ideology attracts opprobrium from the large corporate faithful. Quiet argument supported by common sense is the only reasonable path in the face of zealotry. This will turn. I hope so. I hope you're right, Robert. Uh, Carrie writes, the problems created by reverse discrimination are even deeper than you might imagine. And if these issues were limited to the ABC, we might be able to undo these anti-rational policies. But unfortunately, they are ubiquitous in the public sector and approaching mainstream in big business. John wrote in with one extremely sound suggestion. I think the ABC's funding should be directly proportional to its viewer numbers. The fewer people who engage with the ABC, the less funding they get. Who can argue with that? And uh, finally, a quick note from Boomer Bill. Probin is better off out of there. I tend to agree with you there, Bill. Uh, keep your comments coming. I always enjoy reading them. Email me at nickcater at adh.tv. Thanks to the team at ADH for this production and to my colleagues at the Mendes Research Centre for their help. And finally, most importantly of all, thank you for watching. Good night.